1: Hello, and welcome to Judge Juduitical, a podcast from America Media. For saints and sinners, you can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Your
2: former roommate.
1: Yeah. Still podcast
2: co-host. <laughs> it's so funny, we were just saying, we haven't seen each other in felt like two I weeks. Know, we
1: went... uh, 30 days of (laughs) living in very close quarters and then it's been two weeks. So how you been?
2: I've been sick. Um, Mm. So you were, I I held on while we were in Rome. You kind of caught uh, something towards the end there. Um, It eventually came for me. Um, So uh, please send uh, vitamin C if you're listening to this.
1: (laughs) But we are back in studio, which is very exciting. Uh, No more pillows between us to capture the echo or anything like that. Yeah,
2: I hope people were uh, forgiving of our not normal, stellar sound quality, but um, I'm feeling, how are you feeling post synod, post back from Italy? Uh, it was a shock to walk into fall in yeah. New York.
1: No, it, yeah, we had summer in Italy, basically all October long and we got back and I was actually very happy to see some color on the leaves, some briskness in the air. We got back right right in time for Halloween. So seeing all the kiddos going around in their, their yeah. costumes. I
2: can't, yeah, I like went, got straight off the plane and handed out candy. <laughs> um, a little bit of distance, how are you feeling about the, the synod? overall?
1: It seems like a different life. <laughs> like it was a year ago, living in Rome. But as In terms of the Synod overall, I really do feel like something clicked for me at some point during that month of, like, we've been talking about this event for two years, and it's always been amorphous and, like, what exactly is going to come of this? And being there, even though we had very limited access to what was happening in the Synod Hall, just the pace of it, the fact that it was a month long, and imagining the people in the Hall being together for an entire month, long days, just having to talk and listen, like... That is revolutionary in and of itself. And from what we heard from participants, it really was like a transformative experience. So I came away hopeful for how this can translate to other parts of the church.
2: Yeah, I I guess I've had um, maybe the opposite effect. I I maybe started out more hopeful. And now that I'm back, uh, I was talking with someone who um, is a priest at a parish and just kind of like someone who wants to bring the synod back. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of like, I don't even know where to start. And I was there and, I, and I, I didn't know what to tell him, uh, yeah. which was funny. So I think, I, I think there's going to be more coming out. There is, I think, some guidance coming. Hopefully, um, I think the bishops are going to meet and talk about this um, because the, the synod is not supposed to be over yet, right? We got the super long document um, that requires unpacking, it requires more talking and more listening. I am excited to see what happens these next 11 months.
1: Yeah. And like you said, they're supposed to be coming out with some sort of condensed worksheet that will like guide parishes in in that work. Um, But this week we have someone that we actually talked to while we were in Rome.
2: That's right. We're talking with our good friend Elizabeth Boyle about peacekeeping and the Santa Egidio community.
1: Yeah. So she is based in Rome, but she's been very involved in the uh, peace process in South Sudan. So she goes there every couple months to keep the peace talks alive. It's you know it's still a very fragile peace that has been brokered there. Um, so we talked to her about you know what it's like to be a young woman um, engaged in these conversations about very heavy international topics and and just working in in Rome and. and and what, like, how her Catholic faith informs her approach to her work.
2: Yeah, one of the my favorite things to do with the show is introduce people to some of the I mean, really amazing work that Catholics and young Catholics in particular are doing around the world. And for better or for worse, a lot of these people are doing that work in Rome. So one of the benefits of being there for the month was the chance to kind of catch up with uh, some people whose work I've long admired, and Elizabeth is definitely one of those people.
1: Right. And in Signs of the Times, we're going to talk about Pope Francis's upcoming trip to Dubai for the COP28 meeting. Uh, we're going to talk about a music video that was filmed here in a church in Brooklyn that has sparked a bit of controversy. Ruffled some feathers. <laughs> you might say that. <laughs> but before we get to all of that, what are we drinking this week, Zach?
2: Uh, I'm going to try to do this without turning into my usual like wine snobbery podcast, but this was recommended to us by our guest Elizabeth Boyle. Um, we didn't bring this back from Italy, but the good news is you can probably find this um, at your local wine shop. We are drinking a Lambrusco, which is this uh, slightly sparkling uh, red wine that uh, this one happens to be on the sweeter side, uh, but they're not all like that. Um, I really recommend this if you're if you're having pizza. I feel like this is a great pizza wine. So uh, thanks, Elizabeth, for the recommendation, and cheers. Cheers. Also, we bought this sort of last minute. So uh, you're supposed to have this kind of chilled and it was very much warm in the wine shop. But uh, fun fact, if you fill up um, like a pitcher or a vase or something and put a bunch of ice in it, put a bunch of water in it, stick that bottle in there, uh, swirl it around for a little bit. That's the quickest way to chill a bottle of wine. So more, you know.
1: (laughs) All right. And now we have signs of the times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week. So you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
2: So Pope Francis is going to Dubai for COP28, which is the climate conference that's happening from December 1st to the 3rd. And this is a big deal because this is the first time a pope has ever attended uh, the COP conference.
1: Yeah, so this is a meeting that's happened basically every year since 1995, and it's for people who have signed on to the UN's climate goals to come together and kind of assess the progress we've made, Progress we haven't made and still need to make. So Pope Francis is going, and you might remember back in 2015, before the big Paris acor- or Paris conference, um, Pope Francis penned his famous encyclical Laudato Si' um, a few months before that gathering, and it was seen as a really important intervention, giving kind of moral force to that meeting that led to the Paris agreements. And just a couple months before this COP28 summit, he he did a follow up to that document.
2: That's right. The new follow up is called Laudate Deum. This- came out while we were in Rome. And I'll admit, I, I have not even had a chance to really get into this. But we're going to do some more of that because it does—it it is a really important document, especially coming ahead of these meetings. Um, but this year's summit in Dubai is also notable because it's got faith leaders coming from a lot of different uh, faith traditions. So in addition to Pope Francis, there's going to be an interfaith event running parallel to the COP28 summit in which 70 faith-based organizations that are working on both interfaith dialogue and climate change are going to participate. So a lot of stuff coming up in at uh, COP28. And stay tuned because we're going to be following that. We're also going to take a chance to unpack Laudate Deum on this podcast, which we haven't had a chance to do yet. What's our next story, Ashley?
1: Yeah. So a new music video uh, for the song Feather by the pop artist Sabrina Carpenter was released on October 31st. And some Catholic uh, people are not so happy about this video, which was filmed in a Catholic church in Brooklyn.
2: So Confession, I, I had no idea who Sabrina Carpenter was before this. Did you have any idea who this was?
1: I did not. It made me feel old because this was a very popular video. Yeah. as of It came out eight days ago and it has 5.5 million views. Yeah. But I did uh, look up her Wikipedia and fun fact, she is the niece of the person who does the voice of Marge on The Simpsons.
2: Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I also Wikipedia'd this because, uh, you know, I do my research before <laughs> these pods. And I uh, found out she, she starred in uh, Girl Meets World, which was sort of the reprisal of one of my favorite shows, Boy Meets World. World. Great one. Uh, I I don't think that one was as successful, Girl Meets World. Um, But it seems that Sabrina McCarpenter Carpenter has found fame, if not in the Diocese of Brooklyn.
1: Yes. So, just to give you a sense of what this music video and song is, so it's a song about all the all the men and boys who have hurt Sabrina in in her romantic past, and in this video, she's imagines them all being killed in one way or another. So it's a very like campy horror themed video where these men are dying, and then it ends with her showing up at um, this church. It was the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary Church in Brooklyn. It's a historic 19th century church. So as you can imagine, it's very beautiful and it might tempt someone to film a video there. So she's there for the funeral of the men who have spurned her over the years.
2: Yeah, so the song is Feather and it's from her album Emails I Can't Send, which uh, for Gen Z people, I think is all emails. Um, so I'm not sure what the deal is with that um it as you said it's got 5.5 million views I mean
1: you should say it's she's very scantily clad and there's violence and you know so all that
2: yeah so a lot of people found this was desecrating a sacred space and I think there is some merit to that argument there's been a lot of follow-up action uh the the pastor uh, claims that he didn't Know about exactly what was being filmed there, and so he's sort of been relieved of his administrative duties well, in yeah, the parish. Yeah, so it made
1: its way all the way up to the to the bishop. So our our bishop, friend of the podcast, uh, Bishop Robert Brennan, um, launched an investigation into you know how exactly did this get approved, and they did find that you know while the the church didn't have the exact. Plan of what was going to happen in this video, they knew enough that they shouldn't have let it go forward, and so that's why the pastor was uh, relieved of his administrative duties. He's still the pastor of the church, but it's kind of under the the care of an auxiliary bishop.
2: Yeah. So in this past Sunday, Bishop Brennan blessed the altar again um, with holy water and celebrated a mass of reparation. And this raises, I think, an interesting just point of discussion because you know we've seen instances of real Catholic churches being used for filming other things, um, and we're it seems like there is a policy in the diocese where people review scripts and scenes and things like that. It was unclear to me, though, what the line is and whether you're supposed to just kind of like use your judgment.
1: Yeah, that is what I was thinking about, because I think it's great that that popular culture sees the Catholic Church as this interesting thing that adds gravitas or in, or intrigue to, to a movie. And I wouldn't want all movies to be banned from churches, like really famous movies, The Exorcist. Uh, the Sound of Music was uh, filmed in an abbey. <laughs> um, so More I think recently,
2: Succession, Succession was, w- was filmed at St. Ignatius Jesuit Parish here in mm-hmm. New York City.
1: And so I'd, on the one hand, kind of a blanket policy against any filming would be easier on pastors because you know, a pastor isn't equipped to, like, read a script <laughs> and decide, well, like, this is they, appropriate. I mean,
2: they should be able to. Let's I
1: mean, but they're not <laughs> going to read the entire script. So, like, they're they're going to get a synopsis. And whoever's telling them the synopsis has an incentive to make it sound as anodyne as possible.
2: Yeah, that's true. You should be equipped to read a script, if, especially if you're going to be taking money for this. And that's the thing is I think that for some of these parishes and churches, uh, they're paid a fee to have this thing be filmed here. You should be doing your diligence in figuring out what exactly am I saying yes to. That's true.
1: Uh, We want to actually continue this conversation with people who are more equipped than us to have it because, as we said, we had no idea who this Sabrina Carpenter was. (laughs) So... uh for our Patreon supporters, we are going to have a bonus episode next week uh, featuring our O'Hare fellows here at America, uh, Michael O'Brien and Christine Lenahan, uh, who are both writing about uh, the intersection of pop culture and Catholicism from different angles. Uh, so we're going to bring them on for a conversation and get their thoughts on this. So definitely stay tuned for that. And finally, we're ending on a sadder note you might remember our episode a couple weeks ago with Richard Glardy. Um, When we were talking to him, he was battling a long bout with cancer, which he's come to on November 7th. Uh, So we were very, very sad to hear that news and wanted to just reflect on our our short interaction with him.
2: Yeah, we had this amazing conversation with him about, you know, what can change in Catholic teaching and what can't and what you have to believe to be Catholic and um, heard from a lot of our listeners about how much or how important that episode was to them and how, um, how it helped them make sense of their own relationship with the church. And I just came away from that feeling so grateful to have had the experience that so many of his students have had over the years. Um, you could tell just from talking to him, what a great teacher he was. And as we were signing off and after we stopped recording, you know, he took a moment to, uh, very movingly, he just he thanked us. He said, as someone who's probably stepped foot in the classroom for the last time, thank you for letting me be a teacher again. And I hope that it, there was some consolation found in being able to educate listeners here on the Jesuitical audience. So I just wanted to pray in thanksgiving for Dr. Rick Gallardi. pray for his family, for their comfort and healing.
1: Yeah. And I have to say, as a host, it was a really moving interview for me because, I don't know, we were asking very seemingly simple and basic questions that you might feel kind of, like, like are too simple to ask someone as distinguished as, as Rick is. But he answered them with, like, s- such nuance, but also in, in an accessible way and with a lot of warmth. Like, I, I would ask a question, and he'd be like, oh, maybe that's not the best way to frame it. Let me try to approach it from a different angle that was, like, a thousand times better Mm -hmm. um and so just yeah like you said you could tell he's someone who found his vocation in teaching and communicating with young people and it was a real honor to get to talk to him in his in his last weeks so if you haven't listened to that conversation it's just a few episodes back in your feed and it is well worth your time and now stick around for our conversation with elizabeth boyle Joining us in Rome is Elizabeth Boyle. Elizabeth is an international relations officer with the community of Santa Trudio. Welcome to Judge Jesuitical Elizabeth. Thanks, good morning, happy to be here.
2: It's so good to be with you. Um, so we, we've we met and hung out before. A good friend and our former coworker, Kevin Jackson, introduced us a year ago. And then we just like ran into you on the streets in Tristevere, which felt very providential. It, it seemed like you were doing some important work, but you took time to say hello. And we were like, we have to get Elizabeth on the show. So thank oh, you for, for being here. It was
0: the highlight of my week to see you guys. <laughs> it was the best surprise. You never know what will happen when you walk out the door in room.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about the restaurant that we were eating at when we ran into you?
0: So you guys were at the Trattoria de Amici, which is a restaurant owned and run by the community of Sant'Egidio. So the purpose of the restaurant is to give job training and opportunity to folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities, but also those who are coming from our migration program, the humanitarian corridors, and other people who are going through difficult phases in life. So the restaurant you ate at, aside from being very good. It was delicious. Yeah, absolutely. I am biased, though. Um, It really gives back. And all the money made goes right back into running the restaurant and doing the job training. So it's not so much a money-making venture for the community. It's much more an investment in job skills and training for those who could use it.
2: It's just an awesome place to go. If you're you're ever in Rome, definitely check it out.
1: All right, so how does a 25-year-old woman from Salt Lake City end up doing global peace work in Rome? What's your background? How'd you get
0: here? Oh, well, that's a nice million-dollar question. <laughs> no, I think, so I grew—I was born in Salt Lake, but I grew up mostly um, in New York City and on Long Island, and since I was really little, for some reason, felt drawn to peace work, though as a 10-year-old, I had no idea what that actually meant. So when I was choosing colleges, I knew I wanted to go somewhere where I could study peace, not war and not conflict studies, but explicitly peace. So the University of Notre is Dame. Is that like
2: a divide? Like sometimes you have like oh, yeah. when you're looking for peace programs, it's actually like war and conflict programs?
0: Completely. It's a big divide. And there's a lot of differences between the two.
2: I, I can imagine.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I chose the University of Notre Dame because they have one where, of the where best. Is that? In Indiana. (laughs) I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) Sorry. So you chose the University of Notre Dame, a small Catholic school in Indiana.
0: Exactly. Yes. Exactly. With a decent football team, depending (laughs) on the year. Um, Because they had one of the best peace studies programs in the country. And as you were saying before about the divide, so for example, within peace studies, 85 to 90% of my classmates were always women, but within political science and the international security certificate, which I was also a part of for a time, it was 85 to 90% men. So it's this very clear divide in the field that when you talk about war and violence and strategic programming, that's a man's role and job. But when you talk about peace, that's a weaker side of resolution. So that can be left to- well, and, it,
2: and it plays out in just who completely. signs up for the programs and the classes.
0: Unintentionally. Um, you would have, It's not that one is marketed for a woman and one isn't. It's just- how we've been trained to think about these things, and then you see it on the international stage, right? Who's sitting at the table making the decisions about peace negotiations and declarations of war? Hmm. Okay, so you go to Notre Dame. Go to Notre Dame. What happens next? Study peace and um, political science, but I get particularly interested in the role of religion because I think oftentimes we make it too much of a black and white issue that, um, I mean, we all, growing up in the States, post and during 9-11, we know what happened when we label one religious group as a complete evil violent terrorist movement. And I always felt very unsettled by that. And through the study of peace studies realized not one religion is not more violent than another or more peaceful than another. There's so much nuanced and there's individual identities. So as an undergrad, I did internships at USAID and the US Department of State, both in their faith-based offices.
2: Can we pause there for a second? Because I think some people would like bristle at you know the government having
1: a faith-based yeah. Where's outreach. the
0: separation of church and state? Exactly. Yeah, and that's the whole point of these groups is saying, of course, there's separation of church and state, but separation of church and state doesn't mean we ignore the work of really good faith-inspired NGOs and individuals. That, for example, if you have um, a group like the the Jesuit group that's working on the border in Sonora, Arizona, and Mexico, are the we, Kino Border that, Initiative. We shouldn't say, oh, well, they applied for a great grant to do migration work, but just because of the fact that they're Jesuit and Catholic, we can't give them money.
2: Because they're not just serving Jesuits and Catholics, right? Exactly,
0: right? And that's what these groups come together to try to figure out that problem, because I think in the U.S. we're still learning about how to talk about religion, diplomacy, foreign policy, Mm -hmm. legislation in a healthier way. And in a lot of ways, if you don't include faith groups in the work you're doing, you're missing such a huge group mm. of people and perspectives. So I I was really impressed by the work the government is trying to do. And I do wish that more people knew about it and could learn to speak in the nuances surrounding that intersection of governance and, and faith. Okay. How did you get introduced to the community of Santa Gidio? Ha. So Santa Gidio we had studied about at Notre Dame because it Aside from having many hats, one of the things it does is international conflict resolution work. So we studied it, I knew about it, and then I started my master's degree at Notre Dame, and I had a great mentor of mine recommend that I look into the community. He knew that I wanted to end up in Rome, I wanted to do peace work, and he said, why don't you just try to engage with the community? And I had, who are now my two bosses, Zoom into his class, and he invited me to join to learn about the community, and I just felt something immediately in my soul say this is a group I want to be a part of and this is how I want to do this work I feel drawn to. And then the story just took off from there and two and a half years later, I'm still here in Rome working, learning, and eating a lot of pizza for sure.
2: <laughs> Let's. Uh, I want to pause and just learn more about Santa Judio because um, it's this part of the church that I don't think we've really talked about very much. So could you just explain like what the community is? Is it like an NGO? Is it a parish here? What, how does it fit into... The Catholic Church.
0: So the community of Sant'Egidio, the one-liner on it is it's a lay social movement of the Catholic Church, which means it's a registered entity of the church, but it's not- So it's official. It's official. It's official. (laughs) There's a stamp. But it's not an NGO, it's not an international organization, and it's not an arm of the Vatican.
2: Or a religious order.
0: Or a religious order. Like something like Opus Dei. Would that be
1: another lay movement with official status that people might have heard of? Or is it, I mean, obviously different missions, but. Exactly.
0: Like a Opus Dei, but more also Focolare movement, community and liberation, which maybe some people have heard about. More similar to that. Okay, Um, In the sense of the bulk or almost everybody who's in Sant'Egidio is a lay person. So, the easiest way to describe it, and I'll steal this from Pope Francis, is this description of the community as the community of the three Ps, which is prayer, peace, and poor. So, in terms of prayer, since the very beginning, when the community was founded in 1968 by a group of high school students in Rome who were uncomfortable with not the direction the world were go- was going in, but this idea that they were taught to read the gospel and go to church and pray it, but they felt that nobody was compelling them to put it into action. In the sense of why are we reading about being with the homeless and feeding the poor, but we're not doing that. And this was coming at the convergent time of the Sessantotto, which was this social movement throughout Italian universities and schools, Mm. and Vatican II, which called for more lay leadership and- In
2: general, like 60s hippie 60s,
0: 70s hippie, exactly. (laughs) The the general trend (laughs) that you see around the world. So these high school students said, if no one's gonna do this for us, we're going to do it ourselves. So they started gathering, praying, these lay people who would pray the gospel, and then they would reflect on it together to try to put the gospel in action, a very Gaudium et Spes invocation to do so. Since, since from then, prayer has been at the heart of the community. Every evening here in Rome, we have prayer at 8 p.m. in the Basilica of Santa Maria de Trastevere, and it's a mix of Franciscan spirituality, Orthodox, Liturgy of the Hours, and it's, it's a time in which lay people primarily come together, read the gospel and reflect on how that gospel caused them to work for peace and be with the marginalized in action. And this prayer happens all over the world where we have the community because it's no longer a group of 18-year-olds. It's an estimated over 80,000 people in 73 countries. Wow. How does someone join? So one of the great things about Sant'Egidio, I think, is that there's very little to no barrier to entry. And I said estimated 80,000 purposely because there is no initiation or membership card or registry. If you so feel, if you show up for prayer, you're in. You can consider yourself in. <laughs> well, maybe more than one yeah. time, but you're more than welcome. And you don't need to be Catholic. You don't need to be Christian. But you do need to take seriously this call to work for peace by serving the poor and to have respect for the role of prayer in all of that. And, and this call to be the good Samaritan, which means to go on the road to those who are suffering and to do it because it's the right thing to do. Can you
1: unpack that connection? I think a lot of people see like, War and peace as one big problem and poverty as another big
0: problem. What's the connection between the two? Yeah. So the founder of the community, Andrea Riccardi, has this great quote where he says, war is the mother of all poverty. So for us as Santaginia, when we began the diplomatic work, there was this misconception that, oh, well, now Santa Santaginia is going to abandon their work with the poor to become another international institution. And for us, it couldn't be further from the truth. We began our work through a personal story because there was a civil war in Mozambique where we had, and still have, a huge community, and we had members of the community who were killed in the civil war. And we very quickly realized that any of our efforts to bring humanitarian aid to serve the homeless, to serve the elderly, will never last and never be sustainable if there's still conflict on the ground. So through a series of, of friendships, we were asked to work with this bishop, this Archbishop Jaime Gonzalez in Mozambique, to help him find a way to bring together Limo and Renamo, these two warring parties. After 27 months of negotiation, it succeeded, the peace agreement was signed, and now the name of Santa Sant'Egidio has entered into the space of UN-US international diplomacy that we never imagined. But for us, it comes back to the core of war is an evil, just like poverty and illness and homelessness and negligence of those who are the most marginalized. And if we don't try to be nonviolent people and make an attempt to stop wars, all of these other things we're doing will never last and will never be sustainable. Because you need you need peace in order to then work on all these other things as well.
2: Is there a, an approach that San Egidio takes that's sort of unique to their own peace-building efforts? Because I mean there I imagine there are other groups that are trying to do this kind of work.
0: Sure. So within San Egidio, we're also very we have our own style of doing things, but I wouldn't say we follow a technical methodology on purpose because we want to stay true to who we are. We are this movement of young lay people who are crazy enough to think that peace can be possible, but we also know that we're working within this very delicate system. So some key maybe characteristics, I could say, are our approach to embracing synergy. Synergy means that we as Santagidio can do very little. We have no army, we have no financial power or strength, we can't waver sanctions, but we are in touch with and have agreements with the UN and the World Food Program and the World Bank and UNHCR. So how can we use those friendships together that our efforts alone won't be enough and nor will international efforts. So we all need to work together in this synergized way to try to end conflict. So
2: are you often just like connecting a lot of these different aid groups? You, you serve as sort of a center point that can talk to, all these different groups? It
0: depends on the context. Sometimes, maybe a good example is in the Central African Republic, where we were asked in 2016 by the president to try to work with the armed groups. There's dozens of armed groups within the country. So we began working with them because we had these relationships. We are based in the country and we're trusted there. But we realized there was a need for a DDR process, which is a disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration. Basically, the burning of the guns is what this idea is. So we're in touch with the armed groups, we're in touch with the president, and we're in touch with the UN. So we were able to come up with a campaign throughout the country with civil society groups to work with the United Nations to do the disarmament. And it was successful. Hmm. Because we as San Eugenio can't do disarmament. We don't have that power. But we can bring the folks who can into contact with the folks who need it, and we can help to make that happen. So that's oftentimes what it'll look like. And is it
2: important that you all have a presence in the in the community already or in the country already?
0: Most of the times we do. South Sudan, the case that I'm most directly involved in is a little bit different because we don't. But we find that for us, it's it's the style that we entered in. Usually it's our community is there first and it's the community as such that's asked to do this work because it's viewed as a friend, a trusted intermediary, somebody who's neutral in the conflict. So for us, it often makes more sense, but that's not a, a necessary thing to exist in order for us to to mediate or not.
1: So you mentioned South Sudan. Can we talk about that case? So if Santa Ejidio didn't have a presence there before, how did they get wrapped into the um, conflict
0: resolution in that? Sure. So one of these other characteristics or strengths that Santa Ejidio has is long-term commitment. We can take as much time in the world as we could need to do some of our engagements. And a great example of this is South Sudan. So South Sudan became a country in 2011, but we were in touch with the leaders of the country since 1995. That was their first visit to Sant'Egidio. So it took from 1995 until 2020 when we started our political initiative there to actually do some sort of formal mediation in South And that's because at Sant'Egidio, we don't seek out conflicts. We don't say, well. They came to you? They came to us. Okay. And that's the approach because we try to be very practical. If you're a part of a Sant'Egidio mediation, you are not paid nor are we paid to do this. We're doing this with as much time as as would need to move at the speed of trust because one of the key um, goals of our mediation is that people have to come to a personal sense of responsibility and a personal understanding that what you need to achieve has to envision a common future for everybody. That if Zach and Ashley are in conflict <laughs> – same Never. because we've been
2: living and working together in <laughs> exactly, the same apartment. For exactly, a month. completely.
0: So if that yeah. was true. What we as Santa try to encourage is for Ashley to realize her future is not possible without Zach's and vice versa that it's not elimination of the other person at the opposite side of the table. But that takes it as, as tough as that can be after three weeks yeah, together. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but it takes a long time to do. So for us, it's we have this friendship from 1995. We've followed the country since then. We've gone many times. We've gotten to know all the actors. So when something came up in 2020, it was the president of the country who said, sent the judio there needs to be a way to bring the groups that did not sign the 2018 peace agreement into a dialogue with us, the government. Can Santa GDU play a role in doing that? And we said yes. So since then, we've had a political initiative called the Rome Initiative, and its niche goal is to do that, to bring the non-signatory groups of the 2018 r into a dialogue with the government based in Juba, the capital of Saskatchewan.
1: So I think anyone who's been following this um, will remember in 2019 when the two warring sides came to a retreat at the Vatican. And there's this very powerful image of Pope Francis getting on his knees and kissing their feet and begging them to, to come to peace. Can you just talk about how that happened?
0: Sure. It was such a beautiful and profound image and move by the Holy Father. And he has been, him and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the other leaders, have been great friends of South Sudan for a long time. So this image that you see, it's of Salva Kiir, who's the current president, and Riak Machar, who's the current first vice president. There's five vice presidents, so the other four were there as well. But the relationship between Salva Kiir and Riak Machar is particularly important to note because after the country was founded in 2011, then there was a civil war, the first of them, that broke out in 2013 primarily between Salvakir, who is of the Dinka nationality, and Riak Mashar, who is Nuer. So a big part of the conflict is that it's ethnicized, that you hate the other person based on the fact that you're from a different tribe. So it's these two leaders who have fought together for such a long time that in 2018, with this new revitalized peace agreement, decided to have a joint governance structure in which one was president, the other was the first vice president, followed by four additional ones. So those are the folks that you had at the Vatican that the that the Holy Father was imploring to take up this call for peace. And then this is followed up by the historical ecumenical visit of Pope Francis, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Scottish Church this past February. But throughout all To the, South Sudan. To South Sudan, exactly. Thank you. But throughout all that time, Santa Gidea was also a part of that because we've had a long-standing relationship with the South Sudan Council of Churches, which is a very interesting group because it's ecumenical. It's 10 Christian churches together, including the Catholic, who refer to themselves as the church. So in South Sudan, there's not a problem of ecumenism as we actually see in a lot of places in the world. It's a great gift that South Sudan has to show to others. So the Council of Churches, before the spiritual retreat of the leaders of South Sudan, had the chance to meet with Pope Francis. And it was through those conversations, in tandem with conversations with Sant'Egidio and others, that the spiritual retreat came about. And then as a result of the spiritual retreat, you have the ask from President Salva Kyr to Sant'Egidio to start this mediation with the non-signatory groups.
2: So what I'm taking away is that peace building takes a lot of time. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> wh- what's your own disposition to that? I mean, do you ever feel frustrated or like it should be happening quicker? I mean, I, I, something, I just am at fault too as a young person. I feel like I want things to happen now and I want them to happen quickly. So I can imagine this work would be really difficult.
0: At first I thought maybe. There's a great, and I'm going to butcher it, but there's a great quote by Martin Luther King about the, the arch of history bending towards justice. And I think over time I became more aware also that things do take a long amount of time, that if you want to do something right, it's not going to happen overnight. You can't imagine a country that was founded in 2011 by 2023 to have a perfectly functioning governance structure with no issues when you have history of conflict and trauma to work through. I think history is long and it's, it's, if you go and you read through the history of your own country or anything that you're interested in, you know, that things don't happen overnight. So I feel grateful to be in a group that takes that seriously. I think it becomes sometimes more frustrating when you feel that you're in a space that puts the pressure on that says you have to have the answer by tomorrow, because that's not fair to anybody involved. So sure, sometimes it would be nice if things move faster, but I think if we are to work for a peace that lasts and that's sustainable and that addresses historical trauma and harm, it can't be done overnight. But you see this idea of having to take history seriously and moving slowly, not only in South Sudan, but in Central African Republic, in Israel and Palestine, in South Africa, in also Ukraine and Russia. These things didn't happen overnight and the solutions themselves can't come overnight. So there's a need to learn patience. But I think what young people can add to this is the focus on being bold. That because we're young, because we're new to this spaces, sometimes we're a little bit less, maybe jaded is the word for it. So young people can call for bold, respectful actions. That sometimes folks who've been in the space for a long time and have seen a lot of hurt and harm are not able to to put energy into in the way they would like to. So I would say for us as young people, it's let's respect the fact that this takes a long amount of time to be done well, but we can also be bold in some of the things we're calling for. Did you go to South Sudan when the Pope was there? Yes. So I've been. I go about once every two or three months. Wow. So a lot more to South Sudan than back yeah. home to the states. Um, and it's just, it's such a blessing to get to know, it's not something I'm reading about on paper, but it's, let me go and have a meal with my friends who are from there. Let me hear from the folks my age about what it means to be South Sudanese. Um, and the visit of the Pope was particularly Yeah, what did that mean to people? Oh, wow. It was, people would say that this is the first time since independence that I have felt free. You have a gathering of more than 100,000 people, which in South Sudan is unimaginable. Movement is so restricted. People are under so much fear that it was such a great example of gathering together isn't a violent thing. Actually, it can be a very peaceful thing. And the Pope and the Archbishop in particular specifically spoke to the role of young people and women in working for peace. And I think a lot of folks, young folks that I had spoken to before were worried that the, the event would come off as an endorsement of some of the less positive things going on in the country.
1: But they left. They didn't wait for everything to be perfect to make their trip. Exactly,
0: which was purposeful. And I think that was what the young people needed, that somebody saying, we see you where you're at, and we see your country where it is, and we also recognize that the hope in the future is in you all. So we are here for you, we are here for the mothers, we are here for the children who are putting themselves on the line for peace every day. And that was what I understood most young people took away from it. And also this idea of, We have to combat this evil of tribalism, which is what I was saying before, that if you are a Shaluk and Zach is Dinka and I'm New you're taught from the moment you're born to hate the other person on the basis of their tribe. But that doesn't need to be the case. But the people who are going to break it psychologically are those who are just entering into that mindset. And
1: what has happened since that visit? Because I think a lot of people will look at that and be like, okay, did it work?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And everybody wants to see fast resolutions, Uh right? They want to see another peace agreement signed. I am finding most hope in it by looking at the civil society. I am seeing a lot of hope in the civil society. So the last time I was there um, in June, I was with a group of young people from all different tribes. And they were doing their own self-reflection on the visit. What does this mean? And what emerged from it is this idea of tribalism, that we need to be the ones to say, no more are we going to let this rule the way we think about our neighbors and the way we do our work and act as people. We need to come to some sort of self-understanding of what it means to be South Sudanese and to be proud of our tribe, not to use that as violence. So I have seen a lot more... Very smart and attentive social movement work going on, especially from young people, with the caveat of, unfortunately, the space for civil society is ever shrinking in the country. The other thing I would just add is it definitely has strengthened the churches there. It's strengthened that spirit of ecumenism. It's really brought them together. And you probably just saw that one of the new cardinals announced was Stephen Ameo Mula, who is the Archbishop of Juba. And this is a huge thing for the church there and for the international vision of South Sudan. So those, for me, are really positive signs. Um, But of course, there's still difficulties in terms of political settlements and in fighting and what that looks like, especially in the lead up to potentially elections in the end of December 2024.
2: Hmm. I'm curious if you could offer any tips for integrating peace into your own spirituality, um, short of looking forward, signing up for your local Santa Judea chapter. Well,
0: you should definitely do that, Zach. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, but I also think this is a natural inclination of young people that you read the gospel. You're trying to put it into the context of your own time. At least I find myself doing that.
2: And there's plenty of conflict. And there's plenty of conflict.
0: But there's also not only international conflict, but conflict amongst friends. And maybe you're in conflict with your parents right now, or you're having difficulty with your lab partner at school that... This call to peace that's so rooted throughout the gospel is not just a call to sit around a fancy mediation table and try to bring warring groups together. It's a call to do that on a daily basis. It's the next time you're walking through New York City and you're with a group of friends to the bar, you don't ignore the person experiencing homelessness on the side of the street. You say, let me take five minutes and have a conversation and ask how they are. It's these little things that will result, I think, in this revolution change of heart to be peacemakers because everybody has the capacity to be a peacemaker. But I find that it's much more dangerous and difficult to say yes to peace and it's much easier to say yes to indifference and avoidance and violence. So taking the Gospels and saying, I can put this concretely in action in my life by things that seem really small but actually make a big difference. How does doing that in community shape things. Because I've I've seen our friend
1: Kevin Jackson do exactly what you're saying, stop and take time to talk to someone who's sleeping on the streets. And like even just if I was by myself, I was like, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. I'd be nervous. And so like the idea of having other people whose example and just like friendship you can rely on seems like it would be really helpful.
0: <laughs> and I think that's one of the great gifts of the community. Right? For myself, when I met it. I've grown up in New York City and Long Island, and as a young woman, you're taught certain things, or you're told certain things about it. If you're walking on the street alone, you have to be very careful, or there's places you don't go, or there's people you don't speak with. But it wasn't until I started joining Gidio that I actually, and I, I feel embarrassed to say it, but this is the truth, that I would stop and speak with those folks. But I was able to do that because I was in community. And I learned from the example of people like Kevin and others how to do it until I could then go and do it on myself. And now I can do it with others as I'm here in Rome. So I think the community aspect is key also because none of us exist alone. I think we learned that so much during the pandemic, we crave community and to be around each other and service with others is the same thing. At the end of the day, you're entering into friendship. Friendship is so much more beautiful when it's even more than two people, when you feel that you have a community of folks surrounding you. So I would encourage people, especially those who are a little bit wary to enter into this approach of peace building, do it in community, go with friends, go with neighbors, go with family members. It's maybe the best way to to start getting to know people.
2: I'm curious if you see anything happening with the synod on synodality that is relevant to peace building or community building. What are your hopes for what's happening here in Rome this month?
0: Sure. I'm very excited for the synod. I really appreciate the intentionality that they've put behind so much, as it seems. Obviously, I'm on the outside of it. But to me, it seems that there's intentionality not just in the people that they're picking, but also in the physicality of the space and the way they're doing things, which for me is reminiscent of peace work. So for example, at the synod right now, they chose specifically to have round tables, no speaker at the top. The way that everything is set up is to make it feel like you're all on the same level. For us at Santa Gidea, when we were doing a negotiation for Mozambique, we chose to have that negotiation in a room that didn't have windows because the groups that we were working with were so traumatized by being in the bush for war that anytime they heard a car going by on the streets of Trastevere, they thought it was somebody coming to attack them. And in that sense, that physicality of the space becomes so important. It becomes as important as the agreement you're trying to work on. And I think the synod organizers are attuned to that as well, that if you try to do it physically in the way it's been done in the past, it already sets up a wall of who gets to speak, who doesn't, and what we're working towards here. So I think that's promising. I think there's fantastic young people who are there at the Synod, and that gave me great hope that they're trying to bring um, a new perspective to this. And I think it's a call also for communities and groups around the world. My understanding is the hope of the Synod isn't just to say, we're doing this in a big fancy room in the Vatican for three weeks, and that's it. It's to call all of us to walk this synodal path, which I think inherently means Learning to put listening above speaking learning to take seriously the opinion of someone else Not just assuming that yours is the only correct one in the room and has to be the strongest and I think that is Absolutely key for peacemaking work because if you the mediator enter in and think that you have all of the answers and resolutions You're going to you're describing how
2: I show up to work every day Exactly.
0: (laughs) So Zach again, this is a personal mediation approach here (laughs) (laughs) But you're – and that's also a percentage You We never come with prescribed agreements because that's what happened in South Sudan, for example. One of the reasons these groups didn't sign the agreement in 2018 is because they said that the international community came in with a prescribed agreement as to how this meeting was going to end and that they, quote unquote, forced people to sign it. And that's how you have the peace you have now. So because of that, these groups won't sign. They don't believe it. They will continue trying to govern the way they want to. And it's similar in the Senate. If you come in with a prescribed idea of how this is going to work, exactly what we're going to answer and how we want the responses to be, is that very synodal? I don't think so. So
1: all right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming here working out Zach and Mai's conflict and <laughs> addition to all the work you're doing in South Sudan. Um, we do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests, and that's uh if you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why?
0: Somebody who I've been reflecting on a lot recently is Father Michael Judge, who I know folks are working on his canonization now. But I think particularly as a young person who was living in New York City during 9-11, as something that's shaped my approach to the work I do so much, I think he's such an example of what it means to be to be catholic and to say i'm going to serve the poorest of the poor and i'm going to put myself on the front line and that's what martyrdom quote unquote looks like in the 21st century so that's that's and what i would say
1: he was a chaplain for the fire department who ran into the falling towers and exactly. lost his exactly
0: exactly and there's this image of him kind of as the mm-hmm. modern day pieta of them carrying him out of the rumble he is they they quote him as the first person who died in the attack and then they laid his body on the altar there But he did service with HIV AIDS patients, with the homeless, with the elderly. He did incredibly radical work in New York City up until that day. And I think that legacy that he sets, especially for young folks um, and in New York right now, as New York is changing a little bit, is a really powerful one.
2: All right, Saint Michael Judge, uh, Elizabeth. Where can people find out about the work that Santa Gidio is doing?
0: If you go online and if you Google Santa Gidio, there will have there will be a website, and you can type in your postal code address, and it'll tell the community that's nearest to you. And just for American listeners, I can add that we are in Chicago, South Bend, Washington DC, Boston, and New York are the main primary communities.
2: All right, awesome. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on. Bye. Thank
0: you, guys. Really appreciate it.
2: All right now, it's time for parish announcements—the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, I'm still not used to reading that. I, there's always an awkward pause when we start this. <laughs> and because I'm just
1: looking at you, tonight, waiting I'm for you like, to talk. Because <laughs> you
2: normally introduce all the segments. We gave me one, and I can't get it right. Uh, but. A couple huge thank yous to give this week uh, to some new Patreon supporters. Um, As you know, we've been posting some bonus episodes uh, from our time in Rome, and we're not done yet. We've got a great conversation that we had with some students from Fordham University who were taking a class in synodality. And so part of that was actually going to Rome uh, to experience some of the energy around the synod while it was happening. And they took some time out of that visit to chat with us about what synodality means to them. And honestly, I was blown away by their perspectives. Yeah,
1: honestly, they were more like steeped in synodality than, than even I was. It was really impressive and they were excited about it. And it kind of reinvigorated me at kind of like a, mid, a mid-month slump at the synod to hear from them and their excitement.
2: Yeah, so if you're a person who's like, ah, uh, will this m- make any difference? Are there any young people who in the church who care about this? We we have proof that there are and they're on our uh, Patreon bonus episode. There'll be a sample in this main feed that you can listen to. But if you wanna listen to the whole thing, you can join my good friends, Dana Shum, Ashley Gwynn, Kristen Forager, and all of our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Media.
1: And we mentioned in Signs of the Times that we're gonna have another bonus episode next week featuring our O'Hare Fellows for this year. And I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to plug the O'Hare Fellowship. The applications are now open for the 2024-2025 O'Hare Fellowship year. And if you don't know about it, it's really a one in a lifetime opportunity and and unique in the media space, I think. So for mid-August to the end of June, grads of any college or university in the United States or Canada can come and work with us in New York. They get free housing at Fordham Lincoln Center right next to Central Park. They work with Zach and I, with Jim Martin, and all of our amazing colleagues here at America. We're now in our, our eighth cohort, and I think that each one has brought something unique to America, and we're so grateful for all they contribute to our work here.
2: I hope that working with us is a perk. I'm not sure that it is, <laughs> but um, it's it's a great program. I love our Hair Fellows every year. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that the this cohort still has like six months ago. I don't want to like make them think that they're doing too good of a job just yet. So please sign up if you're if you know a senior in college, if you are a senior in college and you want to come work in one of the coolest spaces in the Catholic world, um, please check that out.
1: Yeah. So submissions that come in by November 30th of this year will get priority consideration. But the final deadline is February 1st, 2024. Um, And you can find out more about the fellowship at o'harefellows.org.
2: And if you want to see what a day in the life of an O'Hare Fellow is like, uh, and you should be following us on Instagram already, they're taking over the America Media Instagram. So uh, make sure to follow that and you'll be able to follow along what their day is like. They're going to be jumping on Jesuitical that day. Wednesday is when we record. So Wednesday, November 15th, the O'Hare Fellows are doing an Instagram takeover of uh, the America Media Instagram feed. So follow that at, at America Media.
1: And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, And I want to go back to the Synod. I hope people aren't sick of the Synod yet. We still have a a year to go. But one of the, to use Synod speak, divergences during my experience in Rome was we were there to cover the Synod. um, And then just a few days into it. There was the horrific attack uh, by Hamas on Israel, and I suddenly found myself kind of with my heart and mind split and in two very different places where there were two very different stories in Rome. It was a story of people coming together across, you know, divisions in the church and sitting at tables and listening and trying to find places of common ground or just even if not that, at least learn how to, how to talk and listen to each other. And then, you know, there are these horrific scenes coming out of Israel and then these distressing scenes coming. Out of the United States and places around the world in in response to that attack, and I in for the first few weeks, I was just like, I, I don't know how to how to reconcile these things. And then there was this moment during the last week of the synod where uh, at a press briefing that we went to, Cardinal Sean Byrne, he talked about how he had this conversation with the Economist Jeffrey Sachs, who he's he's not a Catholic, but he's interested in public policy and and where religion fits in that. And he told the Cardinal, you know you know, if the UN Security Council just adopted this synodal method, maybe there would be world peace. And that seems, at at first it struck me as kind of like Pollyannish, but then I was like, it made me appreciate more deeply what was actually happening at the synod. This method of, you know, just recognizing that encounter happens on the person-to-person level, and we witnessed that at the synod. And then kind of, so that was kind of the background. And then applying it to my own life, I found in those first very intense first weeks. I found it hard to have conversations in the spirit around what was happening in Israel. I had very intense feelings around it, and I didn't want to listen to <laughs> to what other people had to say about it. I wanted to get my get my opinion in there and convince other people, which is kind of like the opposite of what is happening at the synod. So it was just an, it was an opportunity for me to to think more deeply about what this actually means in in my own life to approach things. Um, with a more synodal, listening, open spirit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important because, like, yes, synodality is supposed to transform the church and how the church operates, but it also should transform members of the church, right? Like, if we are leavens for for active listening in the world, I mean, if that's the only thing that comes out of the synod is that Catholics learn how to be better listeners in the world and learn how to have better harder conversations Um, it's not meant to just be like you're not supposed to have better quote-unquote catholic church conversations right i think like it should help you also be a better friend a better son parent student all these different things like if, if it works in the church it should work outside of the church too i think
1: and it, it also gave me an appreciation about of how, how hard it is because, mm-hmm. you know, like when you're talking about something as contentious as Israel, Palestine, like that's really hard. But it's also when you come to... Things about the church, like people, this is their faith. This is they've invested a lot in it. So the, those conversations are hard. So the people who went to the senate and the people who participated at the local level, like they gave a lot of themselves and they risked. Um, it's a risky thing to be open and and to go into something presupposing the best of your of the person you're talking to and and just seeing them as a person first before any of their ideas or arguments. So that's something I'm going to be taking with me from the Synod, for sure. Um, and so, listeners, I would, I would encourage you to like think about those conversations that you've had in the past or want to have in the future that are hard and that require letting your guard down and being opening, open to ideas that you might find really challenging to your most fundamental beliefs and even your identity, and, and just uh, just practicing that synodal way in, in the next couple months as we approach the second session.
2: It's a great idea.
1: All right. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshart Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.